If you were uh, listening and praying along during the prayer, then what you know is that uh, this book uh, has uh, been taken various ways by different people. And some people say, since it doesn't mention the Word of God, it shouldn't be in the Word of God. And what they miss is that God is everywhere in this book, and he's working and he's moving. Even though he's not mentioned here, uh, we are going to be very assured of that. Well, by, by various means, from democracy to dictatorships, wicked people have all through the ages come to positions of power and authority over great populations of people. And we live under one of those things today where there's somebody else that is in charge of us and our government, it's not us. Some of these people have revealed their character much before they ever get the position of rulership. Some reveal it afterwards, and that follows what the Bible warns us of, and that is that some men's sins precede them, and some men's sins follow behind them. So the apostle says, lay hands on no one too soon, because you really don't know what you have. You don't know if you have somebody that's a sinner and has kept it secret, or they're a sinner and you already know it. Just take your time. But in the world of government and secular government, uh, we often get people that are after things that they should not be after. And this has been going on from the beginning of time when men started governing themselves, corruption entered in, as well as people that did what was right. And it's going to be with us until the days of the Antichrist when we believe at the end of this age, and especially in the second part of the tribulation where God breaks forth his wrath on unbelievers, but the Antichrist is going to be the greatest world ruler uh, other than Jesus Christ who's coming after him and who's going to defeat him. And this Antichrist is going to be the most powerful person in the world, and he's going to be godless. He could care less what the Bible says. He doesn't care about Christianity. He doesn't care about anything but himself. And he will exalt himself, and he will be greedy, and he will be a liar, and he will have all kinds of other problems going on, and God is going to come and defeat him at the end of his rule uh, which is going to last about seven years, at least through the tribulation. And that will be the last and the greatest of human rulers, meaning the most powerful, meaning the one with greatest authority. He will be done away with. And Jesus Christ will send him and the prophet that goes around telling people to worship him, send them both to the lake of fire and will throw them in there alive without them dying first. And then the Lord Jesus is going to clean up the earth. And he's going to set up his rule. And for 1,000 years, he will literally rule on this earth. And he will not be wicked, but he will be the most righteous, wisest, godly, because he is God, ruler that the world has ever had. <clears throat> well, in the meantime, in our world, these wicked leaders oppose what is right and morally decent. We find that in our own country, where our leaders are holding things uh, up for us that we cannot accept because they are immoral and they are wicked, and they're an abomination to God, and yet we live under their authority and their rule. Uh, these kinds of people promote wickedness. Sometimes they are hypocrites. They're demanding of the populace what they themselves will not do. They're often immoral. They're often greedy, and they really don't care uh, to do anything else but have their own pockets filled personally with the money of those that they rule. Many names come to mind in history and could come to mind even today. 
Names like Saddam Hussein, Adolf Hitler, Mussolini, and people like Agag and Ahab, ancient kings in the land of Israel. And there's a, a list that would go on all day and would take up all of our time, and they're not worth mentioning. Today we meet one on, who is on the rise to power in the Persian Empire where Esther is now the queen. We're going to meet a man today that is all that wickedness is. There is no humility in him, and he is about to be elevated in power, the second greatest man in the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire is one of the greatest, if not the greatest of those days, although he's had some opposition from Greece and things like that. It's still one of the greatest empires on earth, if not the greatest, 127 provinces that King Xerxes or Ahasuerus is ruling over. And today he's going to elevate a man into the second position of power. He is a man of greed. He is a man of great pride. And he has a white hot temper that flares up and then people die. Because of a personal insult from one man, this new leader determines to kill an entire race of people. The stakes are so high for those people. And there's going to be people that are hurt along the way. But friends, what I really want you to see is that no matter how out of control this guy is and what's going on in the kingdom, God is always in control. He is always working behind the scenes. And as this, this account goes on, we're going to see exactly how God has set things up. So far, we have scenes like this, and we, we think about it. We wonder, why are we there? And we're starting to wonder, uh, you know, how does this all fit together? But we can see that God raised up a young Jewish girl, and nobody knows she's Jewish. That's, that's a God thing. God has raised up a godly man to raise her. He's her cousin. Her parents were killed. He took her in, adopted her, and he has raised her. And we just assume that he's taught her about Yahweh, and he's taught her about the things of God, and that she has a heart for, for, the, for the Lord, even though he's not mentioned in the book. We also understand that this man has a high-level position at the gate of the very king who is in control of it all. This man is very visible. Uh, he has important duties to do, and his name is Mordecai. And it's his adopted daughter, Hadassah, otherwise known as Esther, who is now queen in this great country, married to Ahasuerus. And now Ahasuerus is going to raise somebody up to second in command, and it's going to affect everybody that's a Jew. Interesting that God kept this secret that Hadassah is a Jew, but Mordecai is going to be revealed as a Jew today. And what interests me is that nobody, even the enemy of Mordecai, ever put this together and said, hey, I wonder if Mordecai being a Jew has anything to do with Hadassah being a Jew. Nobody even asked. You would think that'd be the first question that would be on their, on their minds, and no one says a word. All this, those are God things. All right, let's look at what happens in our continuing uh, account of this ancient Persian king and his kingdom in chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6. After these events... And all this, uh, I want you to focus on not only Esther coming to power as the queen of the land, but we just got through finding out that one of the other things God did was because Mordecai was working in a place where he could hear things and see things, 
that he found out there was a plot against the life of King Ahasuerus, and he, he ratted him out, and he told him that. And normally the king would take a guy like that and elevate him to a high position, make everybody honor him, but nothing is done. That also is a God thing. Have you ever been in a job and you felt like, I'm the one they ought to promote? I'm the one that should have been picked to move up in this company or move up in this position? And you scratch your head because it comes out that somebody else has been promoted. Somebody you think isn't as good as you are, doesn't work as hard as you are, but they're promoted, and you're not. That's when we need to stop and say, God, what are you doing? There's something going on here, and what I think I wanted is not going to happen because you don't want it to happen, but I believe that there's something better for me, and you're doing something for me. And I think that was the attitude that Mordecai had, although it doesn't say so, but he saves the king's life. So when the author says, after these events of Ahasuerus, here's what happens. Notice the next words. He promoted Haman. We don't know who Haman is. Uh, we've never met him before. But we do know Mordecai. And you would think, a guy that's working at the gate has judicial power in the kingdom, obviously, and he saves the king's life, that maybe the king would be thinking, Mordecai's the man. But it's not. It's somebody else, and he promotes Haman. And Haman is the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And he advanced him and established his authority Get this, over all the princes who were with him. In other words, here's the king, and now there's this guy named Haman. And so now it goes King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, same name, uh, same guy, and now Haman. And every other prince, every other that would be have anything to do with the government is now below not just the king, but they're below Haman. And there's other officials. There's other people that probably wanted to be promoted. Just like in every company, somebody gets promoted, there was other people that wanted that, but they didn't get it. And that can make you bitter. It can make you upset at them. It can make you not like them. But anyway, here we are. Verse 2. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. Now, the important thing is they're not worshiping him. They're showing him due respect, and they bow down. How come they do that? Well, here's the answer. For the king, Ahasuerus, had commanded concerning him. In other words, the king gave a command. When you see Haman, you bow to him, you bow down. There's evidence that they were actually uh, prostrating themselves on the ground flat whenever Haman went by, at least acknowledging, at least bowing to him, except one man. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, so all the people that he works with, Haman's going to go through that gate just about every day. And all the guys that he's working with, the servants at the king's gate, they said to Mordecai, so they, they took him aside and said, hey, why are, you not, why are you transgressing the king's command? Because they noticed we're all bowing down and you're not. What's going on? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him, so they did this every day for a period of time. Mordecai, you better bow down. Mordecai, uh, why aren't you doing this? The king said to, and he would not listen to them, that they told Haman, uh-oh, to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. And here's Mordecai's reason. 
for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down, because see, he's on to him now. He's been told, so he's looking. So now he doesn't just walk through with all his pomp and circumstance and how great he is. Now he's looking around to see who is standing up. Sure enough, it's Mordecai. Why isn't he bowing to me? Because the king said he had to. Haman was filled with rage, and that's mild in the Hebrew text. He was filled with white-hot anger. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. In other words, his, his thought is not, I'm just going to take care of Mordecai. That's not enough. He is now going to hate not just Mordecai, but his people. And the people happen to be the Jews. So um, Mordecai, he didn't hate just Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, how would you like it to come down to the point that every one of your friends and everybody is about to suffer because of something you did? It was your decision. He didn't call all the Jews and say, hey, how do you want me to respond to this uh, Haman guy when he walks through? And they took a vote and said, don't bow down, don't do anything. That didn't happen at all. He made up his mind on his own, and that's what I'm going to do. So let's go back and look at some of these in more detail. Verses 1 through the first half of verse 2, if you have your Bibles. A man is promoted to great power, and the king commands that the people bow down and honor him when he is present. Now, I don't know why he did that. I don't know what was going on with Ahasuerus, but after you get to know Haman, I could just see Haman very easily going to the king and saying, you know what, uh, I think it'd be important that you make everybody bow to me. Make everybody show me honor, because I want them to really know what kind of a guy I am and who I am. Whatever the case, they have to bow down. So Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, appoints a man to now a top level, position of authority where he is only the only one at that level no one else has that level we know nothing about this man but we will get to know him very well and i can just tell you ahead of time we are not going to like what we learn however whatever problems we will have with him ahasuerus is convinced he is the man that is qualified for the job to have great power in the kingdom but then, as much as Ahasuerus likes to drink, it makes you wonder when he made that decision and what was going on with him when he did make that decision. That, that could be a question. Sometimes when you're drunk, you make bad decisions. Of all the princes, of all the officials in the kingdom, Haman is now the greatest of them all. Uh, what would that feel like? You get promoted to the top position in your company behind the owner himself, and now everybody has to uh, honor you and do what you say, and, and you're just the top dog. Well, we're going to find out with Haman, uh, there was no, no humility involved at all. Maybe some of those other princes had secretly wished they could have been chosen. I can guarantee you that happened with some of them. Maybe there was some jealousy over what happened. Now, it never says that Mordecai is jealous of the man. Uh, there's no hint of that at all. But for some reason, he's not going to do what the king said. Some uh, commentators, so people that are telling us what things mean in the Bible... Some have spent a lot of time trying to connect Haman with the ancient king of the Amalekites. And his name was Agag. And Agag uh, was uh, killed by Samuel in 1 Samuel 15 when Saul had, had refused to do that, didn't do it, 
and he kept the guy alive. And Samuel came to Saul, and they were supposed to have this great sacrifice over the victory they had over the Amalekites, have this great victory celebration. And Saul decided, you know, let's take some of their good animals. When God said they're all under the ban, none of them should live. And let's keep Agag alive for a little while. And God said he should not have been kept alive. And so Samuel gets there for the sacrifice, and he asks Saul, what, what's going on here? And he said, I've done just what the Lord told me. He says, and Saul says, Samuel says, you did not. How can you claim to do what the Lord told me? What is this bleeding of the sheep I hear and the mooing of the cows? And what is it that Agag, the king of Amalek, is standing right before me? How could that be? Well, it ends up Saul loses his kingship that day because he didn't obey God. And it also ends up that uh, Samuel takes care of the guy and he is killed. Just what God had asked for. Now, if you want to turn for a minute... Not very far from here, but in First Chronicles 4.42. And by the way, I'm making a big deal out of this because um, there's people that make a big deal out of it in their commentaries, and I think they're wrong. Notice what it says here. Verse 42, First Chronicles uh, chapter 4. It says, From them, from the sons of Simeon, 500 men went to Mount Seir with Pelatiah, Neraiah, Rephaiah, and Uziel, and the sons of Ishi as their leaders. They destroyed the remnant of the Amalekites who escaped and have lived there to this day. If that's true, and it is, they destroyed all the Amalekites, then Agag can't be, I'm, I'm sorry, Haman can't be one of them. He's not really saying that he is an ancient enemy of Israel because he's an Amalekite, Agag, from Agag. What's really going on is that there is a town in Persia called Agag, and that's where Haman is from, and they're just saying he is Haman the Agagite, and that means he came from Agag. It doesn't mean that he's an ancient enemy of Israel, and I don't think we should make anything more out of that. Certainly Haman, however, having said that, certainly Haman is going to be acting just like the Amalekites acted and Agag acted when they came against King Saul. So he's as evil as they are. I just don't think he is one of them. And I think it's clear in the text. All right, moving on from there in verse 2, really the ver verse part of verse 2, where it says, All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. All right, what we learn here is that in order to show honor to this man, the new, the new second in charge, Ahasuerus commanded that the people, no distinction here, everybody's below Haman, everybody bows. There's no official that shouldn't bow and pay homage when Haman came by. If there was jealousy among them, then that would make sense, and it would also make things worse. We don't know why Ahasuerus did this, but we do know that Haman was pleased as punch when he walked by and everybody hit the ground, everybody showed honor and bowed down to him. Not in worship, but they just bowed down. The people may not like Haman. Mordecai may not like Haman. Regardless, the king imposed a show of respect, whether one liked it or did not like it. Now let's jump to the New Testament for just a second in Romans chapter 12. We want to ask ourselves, what do we as believers do in honoring people? Should we? 
Should we honor people? Should we show them respect? What does God expect of us? So one example would be for, I'm sorry, Romans 12, 17, where it says this, never pay back evil for evil to anyone, respect what is right in the sight of all men. If the king commanded it, does he really have a good reason not to do it? That's the issue. And he should do what is right in the sight of all men. Uh, that's what our Lord is teaching us, and he didn't teach anything different in the Old Testament. Well, let's turn to 1 Peter for just a minute. And we want to go to chapter 2 and verse 18. This is another bulwark of our character as believers. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are, get this, unreasonable. And that word in the Greek means somebody who is morally bent or crooked. So God says it doesn't matter what kind of a character they have. If they're over you and, and you're the servant, you show them respect. But you should never do something that is wrong. So I know what we're thinking. We're thinking, but wait a minute. It's wrong for him to bow down to Haman. And we're going to have to look at that here in just a minute. Is it really? He's not worshiping. Let's see. In verses 2b through 4, there will be consequences for not obeying the laws of the king. Now, whether he thought he had a good idea or not, he's going to suffer consequences for not doing this later on. In verse 2, Mordecai, who was some sort of official at the king's gate, and the one who just saved the king's life, refused to bow down and refused to pay homage to Haman. The question is, why doesn't Mordecai obey the king? Now, we could make up stuff, and I've heard pastors make up stuff, uh, speaking on this and have conversations that we don't really know ever happened, so I don't like that. But we do know this. Everybody started asking him. See, I think everybody's upset that they have to do that with Haman. They don't like the guy. They're jealous of the guy. And so they want to know, look, why aren't you doing what we're doing? And that's always the issue. When everybody else is doing it, then there's pressure that you do it too. And if you're not going to do it, you need to stand on a principle that is biblically defensible. And you can say, here in the Bible is why I'm not doing that. And, and here's the reason why I'm not going to do that. And if you can't defend it, then I think you should probably do what you're told to do. So the other officials at the king's gate are asking this question, why aren't you obeying the command of the king? We all have to, why shouldn't you? And if you were one bowing down and you really didn't care to do so in the first place, you would want everyone to have to do what you're doing. And you feel like they should have to do it. And you would want to rat them out and tell on them, if they don't comply. Now, they've asked him over and over and over, Mordecai, why aren't you doing this? And they finally got the answer, well, uh, it's because of my heritage. I'm a Jew. So uh, they're, they're thinking about that. And what good reason do you, Mordecai, have for not obeying what the king told you to do? In verse 4, the officials kept right on asking him daily and he would not show honor. Now Mordecai is going to be ratted out. They're going to tell Haman, hey, here's this guy's reason that he doesn't bow down to you. Uh, is that going to hold water? Is that a good reason? Mordecai's answer is based on his nationality. He said, I can't bow down because I'm a Jew. 
Now, uh, what is amazing, and we mentioned it earlier, is he's admitted he's a Jew. Where did the queen come from? Well, the queen is his cousin, the adopted father, and nobody makes the connection. Now, I wonder if the lady who is now in the king's palace might also be a Jew. Haman doesn't care. Haman didn't look at it. He might have known it. I don't know, but the point is nobody made the connection. God kept her safe. So the officials decide, let's tell Haman, will you accept this or not? What this tells us is that uh, the groups that they were in when Haman walked by were apparently big enough, or maybe there was a wall to hide behind when he went through that Mordecai had never been caught to this point. And he didn't even know he wasn't in compliance. If they'd have kept their mouth shut, he probably would have got away with it. What was Mordecai protecting? I'm sorry, what was Mordecai protesting over? We really don't know, except he said he's a Jew. The author doesn't tell us. It is, against Jewish, is it against Jewish law to bow down to someone and honor them? Does the law of God say, could, could Mordecai point to something in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and say, it says very clearly, we are not to bow down to people ever. And that's the issue, because he said, I'm a Jew, and that's why I don't bow down. So you would think, all right, if it's about bowing down, he must be saying, I can't bow down. It's, it's not something biblically that we can do. Now, um, I'm not saying worship. It never, he never commanded them to worship him, so, so don't think that. You're just showing respect. So let's just check out. Is this biblical? And I think these verses are in your Bible. Uh, let's go back to Genesis 23.7. And what we're looking for is something that would say uh, it is wrong for a Jew to bow in honor to someone else. Exodus 23, 7, Abraham before the Hittites. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land and the sons of Heth. And then he, he sort of apologizes and makes up for, the, for uh, some things that had happened. Let's look at Genesis 43, 28. Now these are coming, of course, right out of the law that Mordecai should have known. Genesis 43:28 It says they said your servant your servant our father is well so this is Joseph talking to his brothers while they're there at the palace your servant our father is well he is still alive they bowed down in homage to him they bowed down to Joseph now i'm going to pick up one that's also in Genesis and so we don't have to leave the book yet um, let's just go to 33.3. In 33.3, this is Jacob when he meets Esau. And he passed ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now let's go back to uh, Genesis uh, 19, 1 and 2. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house. And they spent the night, and, and spend the night and wash your feet, that you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, we'll stay out in the open square. We know how that, that whole thing turned out. Now let's go back. We'll jump to another book, to Exodus 18.7. 
in Exodus 18.7. Now we're talking about uh, Moses and Jethro. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into their tent. So here he's just Moses bowing down to his father-in-law. 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. And verse 8. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. So what we've learned here is that the biblical precedent is not that you can't bow down to honor somebody. It is that you can't worship somebody else and bow down. That would be a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. So uh, what is wrong with bowing down in worship? Everything, because it violates the Ten Commandments. Remember in the book of Revelation, you can turn there with me if you want, Revelation chapter 22, John the Apostle has an angel that is leading him through the end times, the eschaton, and uh, he's showing him all these great things that God is going to bring on the earth. And at one point, uh, the, the Apostle John gets so overwhelmed in chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. I, John, he says, I am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at, at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he, that is the angel, said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and, you, uh, and, and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. So all I'm doing is struggling to show you that whatever reason Mordecai has when he says I'm a Jew, i.e., therefore I can't bow down and show honor to somebody, is not biblical. So he cannot stand on the fact that it didn't happen before and that God allowed it to happen before. I think there's another issue, and I think that other issue might be in the heart of Mordecai for some reason, because he doesn't have biblical precedent not to do this. In fact, it goes against him. So let's just file that away, and we'll use that later on as we go through the account. We could guess all day, but we won't be sure. Maybe he himself was jealous of Haman and used the fact that he was a Jew to say, I bow to no man. Maybe he didn't understand God's commands as well as we think he did. I don't know. But regardless of why he did it, Think about this, because sometimes you've been in situations, and I have been in situations, that my decision on this issue will affect the whole company. It will certainly affect my position. Like when I was working for that outfit that delivered packages in Dallas County, and you call us, we'll pick up your package, we guarantee we'll have it anywhere in the county within an hour. And we had all kinds of cars that the, that the boss had purchased. But we were running test tires on those vehicles. And one of the cars had been sold with the company's test tires. We didn't own them. And my boss asked me to lie about it and say, just put him off. And I had to make a decision. <laughs> and I thought, here goes my job. I'm done. But I told him, I will not lie about this. If he asks me, I'm going to tell him the truth that the car has been sold. So either you tell him or I'm going to tell him. And I thought, this is it. Pack up your tools and you're going home. Well, it didn't turn out that way. 
but I put every everything in jeopardy, at least for Noel and I's income and for my, my job. This is much bigger. Regardless of why Mordecai did this, he just put the entire nation in danger of genocide. Now, he may not understand that, but he did. Every Jew is now on the chopping block because he didn't bow down. In verse 5, Haman tested Mordecai, and sure enough, he was disregarding the king of the command. What is expressed in the Hebrew text is he had intense anger. Why? Well, probably because it touched his pride. Dr. Schmutzer said at this point, and I quote, real honor is rooted in the fixed standards of God's character rather than the political whims of a power struggle. And he's right about that. We count character and worthiness and honor a different way than the world. But I don't think with Romans and the first Peter uh, passage that we read that we have a right to say that's a reason why I can't honor you because I don't agree with you because I don't like you. It doesn't say that. So why is Haman so upset? Well, time will show us as we go through here that he is a man of hubris, which is exaggerated pride. He is jealous. He is greedy, none of which are good for any leader's portfolio, not in our book anyway. And in verse 6, it was not going to be enough for Haman to just lay his hands on Mordecai and say, I'll teach you, you so-and-so. He says, no, I am not going to lay my hands on him. I'm going to kill his entire race. And by the way, there's 127 provinces, most all of which that will have Jewish people in them. It's going to be a national a massacre if this man has his way. Now, don't worry. He hates Mordecai in a very special way, and he will build a 50-cubit-high pole, and the text says to hang him on. We've talked about that. I think he's going to be impaled on that 50-high-foot pole. Mordecai says, let me just show you what happens to a man. I mean, I'm sorry. Haman said, let me just show you what happens to a man who goes against me. How would you like to be naked on a pole impaled 50 feet above everybody else in the middle of town? Well, this is going to include all the Jews, even ones who had gone back to rebuild the temple. Now that's going to be in jeopardy. And people have a way of just getting angry and doing things they shouldn't do. There's an illustration uh, that talks about how many of us are familiar with the issue of road rage. Now, I don't know. We live in a small town. I, don't, I haven't seen a lot of road rage here. But go to Kansas City or Denver where I grew up, and it's, it's everywhere. This phenomena is in a place in which people become irrational and bitterly angry over the habits of drivers, and they enter into a sort of combat mode when they're on the road. Their rage can seethe to the point that they swear, they ram other cars with their car, they discharge firearms, they get out of vehicles and have fistfights in the street, and so on. Such behavior could lead to death, and it has before. And it clearly illustrates how uh, bottling up bitterness can lead to a harvest of deadliness. And friends, that's exactly where Haman is going to go. Here is a man who is so incre incredible uh, in his abilities to do exactly what he wants because he's the most powerful man besides the king. He has incredible ability at this point. And he will even get the king's permission to kill the Jews without more than a five-minute conversation. Apparently, life is cheap to Hazawares as well. Now we have a man in power who hates the Jews, Mordecai especially, and he is going to do something about it. He's going to kill every one of them if he has his way. 
Every human indication is that he can get it done. He has the money, he has the king's permission, he has the know-how and the wherewithal. But we must never forget that if it has not been cleared before the throne of heaven, it will not happen. Men can talk all they want. Deuteronomy 32 and 29 says the counsel of the Lord cannot be stopped. When he sets his heart to do something, no one can change it. And so does Proverbs 21:30. And in the first uh, beginning verses of Psalm 2, 1 through 5, the psalmist paints this picture of the kings of the earth saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to defeat this country, I'm going to defeat that country, I'm going to kill so-and-so, I'm going to take spoil, I'm going to get rich, I'm going to do all these things, and I'm going to go against the people of God. And I'm going to go against God himself. And the Bible says, he who sits in the heavens laughs at the hubris of men. He laughs at their puny little plans. He laughs at them thinking they can do whatever they want because they can't. See, men make plans, but God directs what happens in every case. If what men wants is not the plan of God, men's plans will fail. No foe can stand against God's people unless God allows it to be. And if God allows it to be, it is then his will for us, and so it is good for us, even if we can't see it at the time, we choose the way of the Lord. That's what we do. We choose the way of the Lord. By way of application here, number one, let us learn to hunger for peace more than vengeance. God said vengeance belongs to him. Jesus himself said in that Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Secondly, if we are to be exalted, 1 Peter 5, 6 says, let God do it. If we're to be exalted above our humility, let God do it. Number three, people of faith commit to give their grievances to God because vengeance belongs to God. That's not only in Romans chapter 12, but Romans chapter 12 is quoting Deuteronomy 32, 35. Don't take your own revenge. And then lastly, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, where it says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath and thereby give a room to the devil. So don't let your anger move you to sin. Because the sad truth of that is, if you take your anger out on somebody, the one who's going to end up suffering is you. Let's pray. Father, what, what a web that is woven together that we're reading about. So many things happening all at once and in different places, and so many people with different motives and objectives, and we don't understand it all. And it's a, it's a big mess. And a nation is going to be put under the knife if something doesn't happen to stop it. And we just want to thank you as we're watching how things were woven together by you. And people can make plans, but it doesn't mean they can carry them out. And people can make threats, but it doesn't mean they really have the power to do it, even though people like Haman think that they do. It is all up to you. And that is another reason why we are so glad that you are our God and that you're the one we serve because it is only our God, it is only you who is truly in charge and in control 
of everything that happens to us in our life. Help us to be able to see you in everything that happens. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You would please stand and open your hymnals to number 446. We will close by singing, I will serve thee. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the message today, Lord. I pray that you would help us to um, go out here today to be shining lights for you and, and live in humility and not in pride. I just pray, Lord, that you would uh, walk with us every day and bring us back safe again next week. In Jesus' name, amen.